From New York, this is Democracy Now! Hunter Biden thought that his legal jeopardy was going to be over. He went to the courthouse to plead guilty to a plea deal that he had struck with prosecutors. Instead, the Trump-appointed judge rejected it, giving lawyers about 30 days to come back and explain why she should rubber stamp this deal. Hunter Biden's legal problems continue to mount after a judge suspends a plea deal in a stunning move. We'll talk to The Intercept's Ryan Grimm. Then we look at how attack dogs are terrorizing and mauling prisoners inside the United States. We'll speak to a reporter from Insider and a man who was mauled by a dog inside a Virginia prison. I feel him lift the dog up and spin him on my back. So they take me, they take me out back into the vestibule and he bring the dog in while in handcuff and shock and put him on my right leg. And as a police officer is fired in Ohio for letting a dog attack an unarmed black man whose hands were up during a traffic stop, we'll speak with a professor who's closely studied the use of police dogs. My article, Racialized Violence of Police Canine Units, demonstrates the history of settler colonialism and slave hunting in the United States as a precursor to today's use of police canines and argues that we do not recognize the level of force that police canines inflict. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Niger, military officers announced Wednesday they've overthrown President Mohamed Bazoum, imposing a curfew and shutting down borders in the West African nation. Colonel Major Amadou Adraman addressed Niger on national television late Wednesday, flanked by other members of the military. All the institutions of the Seventh Republic are suspended. The secretaries general of the ministries will take care of day-to-day business. The defense and security forces are managing the situation. All external partners are asked not to interfere. The Nigerian president, Mohamed Bazoum, vowed on social media today to fight his ouster. Meanwhile, protesters took to the streets of the capital, Niamey. We are here to defend democracy. We are here to defend the republic. We are here to show our commitment to the rule of law and to say no to any attempt to seize power by force or arms. Democracy must prevail. The ballot boxes have prevailed and President Bazoum has been elected for five years. The people are on their feet. The U.S. immediately called for Bazoum's release as the U.N. and other powers condemned the apparent coup. Niger is a key ally for Europe and the U.S., which has two drone bases and some 800 troops in Niger, where it's been engaged in counterterrorism training since 2002. Violence by armed groups has since surged throughout the region, killing civilians and displacing millions of people. It's not clear if those behind the coup in Niger were trained by the U.S. military, which has trained officers behind recent coups in neighboring Burkina Faso and Mali and other West African nations. Earlier this year, Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with President Bazoum and positioned the U.S. as a better security partner to Niger over the Russian mercenary group Wagner, which has expanded in the region in recent years. This all comes as Niger and the greater Sahel region is in the throes of a humanitarian disaster due to the ongoing conflict and effects of the climate crisis. 
In neighboring Mali, Human Rights Watch has released a new report detailing atrocities committed against civilians by the U.S.-backed Malian army and Wagner Group Russian mercenaries. The report describes extrajudicial executions, forced disappearances, rapes and looting that have taken place since last December. Mali suffered ongoing insecurity and deadly attacks by armed groups, which foreign powers have failed to stem. Two back-to-back -back coups in 2020 and 2021 have further destabilized Mali. Earlier this year, Mali expelled thousands of French troops and U.N. peacekeepers. Afghanistan's Taliban government says it's closed down all women's beauty salons nationwide. The Ministry for the Propagation of Virtue and the Prevention of Vice had given salons one month to comply with an order to cease operations, shuttering some of the last remaining spaces where Afghan women and girls could congregate. This comes as the Biden administration says it's sending a diplomatic delegation to Qatar for a rare meeting with Taliban representatives. State Department spokesperson Vedant Patel said the talks will focus on security, humanitarian aid, Afghanistan's economy, drug trafficking and women's rights. This is not intended to mean any kind of indication of recognition or uh, any kind of indication of normalization or legitimacy uh, of the uh, of the Taliban. Israeli forces fatally shot a 14-year-old Palestinian boy in the head during an overnight raid in the city of Kakilia in the occupied West Bank. Witnesses said Israeli soldiers responded with live rounds after Palestinian youth threw rocks at them. Faris Abu Samra is at least the 37th Palestinian child killed by Israeli forces so far this year. Ghana's parliament has voted to outlaw capital punishment, with a narrow exception for cases of high treason, making Ghana the 124th country in the world to abolish the death penalty. The West African nation has incurred an execution since 1993, but the change in law will see death sentences for nearly 180 prisoners commuted to life in prison. In Chile, teachers walked off the job Wednesday for a 24-hour nationwide strike, demanding the government make good on promises to reimburse teachers for a historical debt incurred when the former dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet slashed their salaries and pensions. This is union leader Paulina Cartagena Vidal speaking from a march of teachers in Chile's capital, Santiago. We are demanding, among other important things, the payment of the historical debt, an urgent demand that does not resist further delay. We are also demanding the prompt payment of the retirement incentive bonus, a bonus due to the low pensions of workers. The U.S. Federal Reserve voted Wednesday to raise interest rates by another quarter percent, taking the cost of borrowing to its highest level in over 20 years. It's the 11th such rate increase in less than a year and a half. In a letter to Fed Chair Jerome Powell, Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts called the Fed's moves needless rate increases that threaten the economy and noted the unemployment rate among black workers rose sharply last month to 6 percent. Warren added, quote, extensive research shows that black workers are usually among the first to lose their jobs when the labor market falters. Accordingly, sharp increases in black unemployment can be a strong predictor of an impending recession, she said. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell sparked concerns over his health Wednesday after he suddenly stopped speaking during a news conference and had to be led away by his Republican colleagues. This week has been good bipartisan cooperation and a string of
The 81-year-old Republican leader had just begun speaking to reporters about the Senate's record-breaking $886 billion military budget when he froze and stared off into space. After a 20-second pause, Republican conference chair John Barrasso, who is a medical doctor, led McConnell away. McConnell returned to the podium a short time later, insisting he felt fine. Senator McConnell suffered several falls this year, including an incident in March that sidelined him from the Senate for six weeks with a concussion and broken ribs. A Trump-appointed federal judge in Delaware has suspended a plea deal between Hunter Biden and federal prosecutors. The president's son had agreed to plead guilty to two misdemeanor tax charges as part of an agreement that would have allowed him to avoid prosecution on a separate gun charge. But on Wednesday, the U.S. District Judge Mary Ellen Narica ruled the agreement lacked legal precedent and questioned the broad scope of the immunity deal, which Biden's lawyers say would have protected him against other charges. By the end of the day, Hunter Biden pleaded not guilty to three tax and gun charges. We'll have more on this story after headlines. Here in New York, former Columbia University OBGYN Robert Haddon was sentenced Tuesday to 20 years in a federal prison for sexually assaulting patients during examinations over 20 years. U.S. District Judge Richard Berman handed down the maximum prison sentence allowed in the case, noting federal prosecutors believe Haddon abused at least 245 women. Lawyers representing survivors say Columbia had a long history of ignoring Haddon's behavior in order to protect its reputation instead of acting in the victim's interests. So far, Columbia University and New York Presbyterian Hospital have paid out $236 million to settle claims by over 200 former patients of Dr. Haddon. One of the survivors, Evelyn Yang, recently wrote, quote, to this day, I'm still waiting for Columbia University to notify former patients that a now twice convicted sex offender worked at Columbia for 20 plus years. They've been saying that that's not their responsibility. But how does that make sense? Yang wrote. Yang is the wife of the former presidential candidate, Andrew Yang. An Ohio police officer filmed unleashing a police dog on an unarmed black truck driver during a July 4th traffic stop has been fired. The Circleville Police Department said actions taken by Officer Ryan Speakman, quote, did not meet the standards and expectations we hold for our police officers, unquote. Video of the incident shows the 23-year-old truck driver, Jadarius Rose, had his hands in the air when Speakman directed the dog to attack him. Rose was hospitalized with significant bleeding on his arms, then booked on felony charges of failure to comply. We'll have more on the use of canine units by police and prison guards later in the broadcast. And Sinead O'Connor, remembered as much for her haunting vocals as for her fearless and outspoken protests, has died at the age of 56. Sinead O'Connor rose to stardom in 1990 when she released her version of the Prince song, Nothing Compares to You. In 1992, she performed Bob Marley's War on Saturday Night Live, then proceeded to rip up a photo of Pope John Paul II on live TV, declaring, quote, fight the real enemy. The move, a protest against systemic child abuse in the Catholic Church, of which she was a survivor, provoked widespread uproar. She addressed her SNL performance days later during an interview with Entertainment Tonight.
Ireland has the highest instance in Europe of child abuse. I experienced it myself um, and I found his presence in Ireland telling the young people of Ireland that he loved them hilarious. At least when I studied the history, I found out that the people who were responsible for telling lies in the first place were the Vatican, who uh, through permitting the invasion of uh, countries and the, the destruction and murder of entire races of people in the name of God and for money, uh, and then their subsequent overtaking of the educational systems of all the countries that they went into to uh, led to um, distortion of historical fact. A decade later, in 2002, an investigation by the Boston Globe shined a spotlight on sexual abuse and its cover-up in the church. Sinead O'Connor was an ally of the LGBTQ communities and marched for abortion rights decades before it was legalized in Ireland. She converted to Islam and started using the name Shahada Sadaqat in 2018. She spoke out for Palestinian rights, respecting the Palestinian civil society call for boycott, divestment and sanctions against Israel, once saying, quote, on a human level, nobody with any sanity, including myself, would have anything but sympathy for the Palestinian plight. There's not a sane person on earth who in any way sanctions what the Israeli authorities are doing, she said. Sinead O'Connor had four children. Her cause of death has not been revealed. Her son, Shane, took his own life a year and a half ago. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Hunter Biden's legal problems continue to mount after a judge suspends a plea deal in a stunning move. The judge put the plea deal on hold, reached between Hunter Biden and federal prosecutors. The president's son had agreed in June to plead guilty to two misdemeanor tax charges as part of a deal that would have allowed him to avoid facing prosecution on a separate gun charge. But on Wednesday, the Trump-appointed federal judge questioned the constitutionality of the agreement, saying the deal lacked legal precedent and was not possibly, quote, worth the paper it's written on. During a stunning court session, the judge, Mary Ellen Narico, also questioned the broad scope of the immunity deal, which Biden's lawyers say would have protected him from facing charges on other unrelated issues. By the end of the day, Hunter Biden pleaded not guilty to three tax and gun charges. He's expected to withdraw the plea if a new deal can be reached. Ahead of next year's election, Republicans have been intensifying their attacks on Hunter Biden, <clears throat> from his personal life to his multi-million dollar overseas business deals related to Ukraine and China. Last week, the Republican-led Oversight Committee held a hearing where two former IRS officials alleged Hunter Biden had received preferential treatment. During the hearing, Republican Congressmember Marjorie Taylor Greene displayed nude pictures of Hunter Biden engaged in sex acts. Hunter Biden's lawyer has since filed an ethics complaint against Greene for displaying the photos during a televised hearing. Coverage of Hunter Biden continues to dominate right-wing news outlets. As of this morning, Fox News had 12 separate articles about Hunter Biden on its homepage. On Breitbart.com, Hunter's name appears 15 times on the site's homepage. We're joined now by Ryan Grimm, Washington, D.C. bureau chief for The Intercept. He recently co-wrote the article, What Does the FBI Have on Hunter and Joe Biden? Ryan, let's begin with what happened in court yesterday. All the news in the morning was a deal was about to be um, sealed. Um, and then this hours-long hearing that ended up in the deal being, well, let's say, stayed for 30 days. What happened and who's the judge? 
uh, this is Judge Norica, who is a uh, an appointee of the Trump uh, administration, but had the approval, the, you know, the, the sign off of both Democratic senators uh, from Delaware. And this is a case where you can say that I think everybody from all sides can say that the judge actually identified problems with the plea deal that do ne- that did need to be resolved and worked out. The most obvious one was that the sides didn't actually agree on what their interpretation of the deal was. Hunter Biden's side said that this plea deal meant that anything that the prosecutors had remotely looked into, including whether or not he had uh, you know, violated FARA, which is not registering as a foreign agent, uh, meant that no future prosecutors could ever bring a case against him for those things. That was Hunter Biden's interpretation, and the judge kind of drew that out of his legal team. She then asked the prosecutors, is that your interpretation of this plea agreement? And the prosecutors said, no, that is not our interpretation of the, of the agreement, that if we can find FARA violations, particularly representing this kind of Chinese energy company, for instance, or, or perhaps uh, Burisma, uh, that we can bring that case in the future. So that is an irreconcilable difference. Like, so she, she ordered the sides to work that part out. The other one is the the unprecedented and potentially unconstitutional part is that they had come to an agreement that rather than the Department of Justice monitoring whether or not Hunter Biden complies uh, with his kind of two years of uh, non-prosecution for his his gun charge, that they wanted the judge to oversee it because they their argument was if Trump comes back into office, Trump would, uh, you know, be reckless and unbiased, uh, reckless and biased and would, uh, you know, bring cases against Hunter Biden in an unfair way. And so it would be better to have the judge overseeing this process. And the judge said, you might have legitimate concerns here, but that's not my role. You know, if you think back to the the case of you know, the attorney, attorney Stephen Donziger, who took on Chevron, there are a lot of problems when a judge starts acting as a prosecutor and the, and the judge seemed to not want to take that present. So she told him to go back, uh, figure out figure out the part about FARA, which they actually did sort out in the courtroom, and they agreed that they would not, uh, and Hunter Biden agreed that he could be prosecuted in the future around FARA violations. Uh, and he said, go back and figure out who's going to oversee this. So it's actually a pretty narrow question. And so if Hunter Biden agrees to let the Justice Department kind of monitor his, his kind of pre-release situation, then unless something major happens in the next 30 days, it seems like the judge is going to sign off on this. So let's go to the charges that he pleaded not guilty to yesterday, but was going to plead guilty to when the deal was going to be sealed. Let's can you explain what the tax charges are and what the gun charges? Right. So not paying his taxes. And he is. Yeah, everybody's uh, let's let's say everybody's innocent until proven guilty. But we know he had huge amounts of income and he didn't pay any taxes. And this was in 2017 and 18. Right. This and uh, this is and this is a time that he has written about in his own memoir as being in, you know in a, on a long drug fuel bender, uh, and so not the kind not not in a situation where he's keeping kind of diligent books. Money is coming in and money is going right right back out. And the right is has argued that uh, the charge I think is more than a hundred thousand dollars is way too small. That there's that there's enough evidence in the public that the amount of money that he was bringing in was over ten million dollars, which Ought, ought to lead to a, a prison sentence. And there's plenty of precedent and there are plenty of people who have gone to prison uh, for that, those amount, that amount of unpaid taxes to say that, wait, this, this, this doesn't seem fair here. The gun charge is pretty straightforward. And I, I, would, I would wonder if most 
people on the right would find it actually unconstitutional and a violation of the Second Amendment. But basically, he bought a gun uh, and there was a form that he had to fill out that said, you know, are you a current drug user? And he checked no. And, you know, we know from his memoir, uh, from videos that he took of himself constantly, that that was not true. Uh, so that, you know, everybody, like I said, everybody innocent until proven guilty, but he's also guilty of that. So he, we, we know he did those things. But I wouldn't find it, uh, you know, surprising if if you had Republicans say, well, you know what, actually, there, your Second Amendment rights should not be abridged by whether or not you're you're a drug user. That's beside the point there. So that that in the plea deal was a it could be a felony, but uh, is is uh, you know he got as long as he's on a good on good behavior for two years, it wouldn't uh, it, he wouldn't get a conviction. Um, this is White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre speaking Wednesday. Hunter Biden is a private citizen, and this was a personal matter for him. As we have said, the president, the first lady, they love their son, and they support him as he continues to rebuild his life. This case was handled independently, as all of you know, by the Justice Department under the leadership of a prosecutor appointed by the former president, President Trump. So this is the first time for a president's son. Um, and obviously now this is of major political interest, what's going on. Um, so much so that there was a hearing last week, um, the House Oversight Committee. Can you talk about the significance of that hearing? Many people like Jim Jordan are saying, who chaired that committee, um, are saying that this proves that— um, that was a successful hearing because that's what weighed in in the judge's decision. Your thoughts on that, Ryan Grimm? I don't think that that's necessarily the case because they still have the fundamental problem uh, that KJP mentioned there, that the prosecutor was appointed by Trump. And even if you have IRS agents who come forward and say, we don't think that this case was brought with the fervor that it ought to have been brought with, and we think that there was political interference— the the fact that Biden left in place the Trump prosecutor kind of really undermines their case. Now, it, that that hearing did come up, uh, or and and the in the Republican congressional investigations did come up in this long uh, sentencing hearing, or what didn't become a sentencing hearing, because you had this bizarre situation uh, where the prosecutors accused Hunter Biden's defense team of having somebody on their staff call. And say they were from a law firm representing the Republicans and asked to have a letter from the Ways and Means chairman taken off of the docket. Uh, the staffer swears up and down that she did not do that, that she that she accurately said that she was from this particular firm and she only wanted kind of uh, publicly identifying information, maybe uh, some tax information, some private information of Hunter Biden's that was in the that was in the documents to be taken off of the public docket, not the entire thing to be taken off the docket. Uh, the, the right has uh, kind of gone nuts with this and is and is calling for the attorneys to be disbarred and is and is making a huge deal of this. Uh, the, the, the judge may kind of, uh, you know, do some type of independent investigation into this. So in that sense, it did get caught up in this. Uh, but the fact that the prosecutor is a is a Trump prosecutor and is still on the case and is still standing behind this plea agreement, despite all of the pressure from the right, I think uh, suggests that, uh, you know, they, they haven't quite penetrated yet, but they're not done. You know, they, they are saying that they're going to bring former Hunter Biden business partner, uh, Devin Archer, to Congress, who the New York Post is reporting 
is going to testify uh, that he knows that uh, Joe Biden, the president, or the, the who wasn't president at the time, but former vice president at the time, you know, spoke to a number of Hunter Biden clients, which would undermine the, the you know, the Biden's claim that Joe Biden was never involved in business dealing. So they're very much trying to move beyond Hunter Biden, which they understand they've, they've kind of beaten that issue to death and trying to move to Joe Biden and trying to link him to some of his deals because they, they think that maybe that's the thing that can get this to break out of the right wing cul-de-sac, which has been stuck in. Uh, Ryan, last question, and that is, well, the headline of the piece you co-wrote, what does the FBI have on Hunter and Joe Biden? That was about this this 1023 document uh, that was all that, that was all the rage uh, on the right and that Chuck Grassley has since released publicly. This is a this is a document that the FBI produces when somebody comes to them with information. Uh, you could you could produce a 1023 later today if you called up the FBI and said you had information. It doesn't mean that the information is, is verified, doesn't, and it doesn't say, have, include any analysis or anything else. But what it, So what it was was a confidential human source saying that they had met with a senior official at Burisma, and that senior official uh, said that Hunter Biden was basically shaking them down for extra money, claiming that he was splitting his fee with Joe Biden. Now, the, the problem, you know, you could, even if you believe the confidential human source, which the, the FBI says is a, has been a credible source in the past, uh, you would have to also believe uh, the Ukrainian oligarch. And a lot of Republicans, including even, say, Ron Johnson, have said, you know, we, we're not sure that this oligarch is telling the truth. We're not sure the oligarch is credible. And then you'd also have to believe Hunter Biden was telling the truth to that oligarch, because Hunter Biden could also just be telling them that uh, to use his father's name to get more money out of them. So, it, it's it's a very interesting detail and part of this whole mosaic, uh, but the FBI ultimately found it uh, not not a, a not a credible tip that they could kind of prosecute on. Ryan Grimm, we want to thank you for being with us, Washington D.C. bureau chief for the Intercept. He writes the newsletter Bad News on Substack, and we'll link to your piece for the Intercept. This is Democracy Now. Coming up, a police officer has been fired in Ohio for sicking an attack dog on an unarmed black man during a traffic stop when the man had his hands up in the air. We'll look at the use of attack dogs by police and prison guards. Stay with us. Boys on Mopeds by Sinead O'Connor. She's died at the age of 56. 
This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. A warning to our viewers and listeners, this next segment includes graphic details. An Ohio police officer filmed unleashing a police dog on an unarmed black truck driver during a July 4th traffic stop has been fired. The Circleville Police Department said actions taken by Officer Ryan Speakman, quote, did not meet the standards and expectations we hold for our police officers, unquote. Video of the incident shows 23-year-old truck driver Jadarius Rose had his hands in the air when Officer Speakman directed the dog to maul him. Speakman released the dog, even though state police officers repeatedly warned him not to. Do not release the dog with his hands up. Do not release the dog with his hands up. After being attacked by the dog, Jadarius Rose was hospitalized with significant bleeding on his arms, then booked on felony charges of failure to comply. Prior to being pulled over and attacked by the dog, Rose had called 911 from his truck, saying he feared the police who were pursuing him were trying to kill him. I don't know why they're trying to kill me. They're not trying to kill you. Yes, they are. Obviously, they're throwing stuff in the, on the ground, trying to explode the tire. Right, so you'll stop. Right, so they are trying to kill me. No, they're not trying to kill you. They are. Yes, they are. Because I do not feel safe with stopping. I don't know why they're throwing stuff on the ground trying to keep me in an accident. We're joined now by Madeline Wasilchuk, an assistant professor at the University of South Carolina School of Law, author of an article in the Georgetown Law Review headlined, The Racialized Violence of Police Canine Force. First of all, Professor Wazelchuk, if you can start off by talking about this horrific case, um, and for people who can't see it, uh, you have this police officer releasing a, d a dog on a man whose arms he had been instructed to put his arms in the air, and they were. You see a woman uh, officer— um, putting her hands over her face, running from the attack. You see the state troopers warning the police officer, do not release that dog, but he does. How typical is this, not only of today, but of the history of the use of um, dogs, especially on people of color in this country? So— I think one thing that's so disturbing is that we don't know exactly how common it is because no one keeps any statistics at all about, or at least not made public nationally, of how many dogs bite people every year, the races of those people, the reasons that the dog was set on them. And this isn't the only time where I've seen people, hands in surrender, have dogs set on them. I've seen videos of of people holding their hands up and having the dog set on them, of having the dog set on, lifted through a window to be set on them. And sometimes police use dogs against folks who they don't even know um, who the target is. So um, Joseph Petaway in Alabama was killed by a police dog when he was repairing a home, um, working as a handyman, and the police set a dog inside and it killed him. Um, this is really an example of what Ruth Wilson Gilmore calls racism's changing same. Dogs were used um, by militaries first, 
And this is another example of militarism. And when uh, colonists came to the United States, they were used to terrorize the Taino people, the indigenous people of this country. And then they were employed in hunting enslaved people. And of course, we're many of us, almost all of us are familiar with the images of dogs attacking students during the civil rights movement. Uh, but we may be less familiar with the fact that police dogs were used that way across the country, including by white supremacist groups in Cairo, Illinois. So there's a through line of this militarized, racialized violence when it comes to police dogs. Can you talk about even the use of the language, the canine unions, units, referring to them as canines um, as opposed to dogs? Yeah, so I think— when we talk about uh, canines, there's this euphemism. There's also this belief that the dogs are specialized, that they're almost like a, a tool that can't be misused. Um, so dogs are set to track people or dogs are uh, set to quote unquote apprehend people, which is what something like that mauling is called, especially if he were had been running away, which he was not, of course, in this case. But that removal of both the animalistic and very violent nature of these types of attacks and sort of trying to place it into euphemized and, and sanitized terms, I think, is where that canine term comes from. And of course, canine is um, changed from C-A-N-I-N-E to K-9 um, with this idea that these the letter K and the are, number nine. Technology, right. Um, so why do you feel that this uh, use of police attack dogs, or in a moment we're going to hear the story of prison attack dogs, is not very much a part of the police reform discussion? I think, except for some videos that um, highlight this, it's not as well known as it should be. Um when I started representing children in courts in Baton Rouge, we had kids coming in every three weeks or so with these really terrible bites and injuries. Um, and that reporting was also uh, followed up by the Marshall Project. And it, it was largely unknown in the public um, outside of the communities that are most effective, outside of the kids that this happened to and their families. And I think um, the prison, the use of them for cell extractions in prisons is also widely unknown, even by scholars. And there's just not much attention on it. I think um, videos like this really highlight the problems. And there's been some outstanding reporting just in the last couple of years across the country in places like Indianapolis and the Bay Area highlighting these problems. But we don't know enough about it. And I also think Canines can be used as sort of fuzzy mascots. They're brought on to morning shows. They get trotted out as a public relations tool. And so there's this warm feeling that many of us have for dogs, of course, that has racial components as well. But they're, they're used in that way, and we don't focus on what they're truly trained to do. And even in law schools, we really focus on dog sniffs, tracking, um, rescue operations. And so they're seen as these valorized canine cop heroes. 
Um, and we don't focus so much on the real violence that they do when they're used for, again, quote unquote, apprehension. So finally, is there a call for police to stop using dogs around the country? Um, you said in a recent study uh, conducted at your university and the University of Utah and Clemson, it was found that the sudden suspension of police canine units in Salt Lake City did not lead to a statistical increase in officer or suspect injury or suspect resistance during felony arrests. We just have a minute. Right. So there was a bill that was pending in California this past term to ban the use of canines uh, for apprehension. I haven't seen that trend across the country. And it would be really helpful to know if there's any benefit to these dogs. Of course, police believe there is. Uh, but I don't see evidence that has borne that out. And I think if you're going to use a tool that causes this much harm, and the harm is well known and documented, then it's on the police to show why this is actually contributing to public safety. And if they can't show that, then we should really reconsider this and stop using police as uh, weapons in this way. Madeline Wazilchuk, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Assistant professor at University of South Carolina School of Law will link to your piece in Georgetown Law Review headlined The Racialized Violence of Police Canine Force. Coming up, we look at how attack dogs are terrorizing and mauling prisoners. Stay with us. My darling child, my darling baby, my darling Sinead O'Connor. She's died at the age of 56. Her son Shane took his own life a year and a half ago. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. A warning to our listeners and viewers. Again, this next segment includes graphic details. Patrol dogs are terrorizing and mauling prisoners inside the United States. That's the headline to a shocking new investigation by Insider. The report reveals prison patrol dogs have attacked at least 295 U.S. prisoners since 2017. Many prisoners were attacked by dogs while face down or in leg irons. Several men said officers shouted racial slurs as dogs bit into their flesh. The Insider reports accompanied by videos of men who describe how they were attacked. This is Linwood Mathias, a patrol dog bit him at Red Onion State Prison in 2017 in Virginia. It was just a, a altercation that took place and, you know, an incident that happened. So when they ordered for everybody to get on the ground, everybody complied. Then the dog was coming apart and I'm the only one that got attacked. 
by the dog, I was already sedated. I was non-violent. And I was in compliance with every direction that was given to me. And I still got bit. And the dog was on my leg for a long period of time with my leg way up in the air, just chewing on it. Linwood Mathias is featured in the new report by Hannah Beckler, investigations editor for Insider. On Wednesday, I spoke with Hannah, and we were joined by another man, Xavier Goodwin, who was formerly incarcerated in Virginia, attacked by a dog also at Red Onion State Prison in 2015. I began by asking Hannah to lay out her findings and talk about the connection between the use of prison dogs in the U.S. prisons and at Abu Ghraib, the notorious U.S. military prison in Iraq where prisoners were tortured. Thanks so much for having me. So in Abu Ghraib, U.S. military dogs were introduced in November 2003, and their involvement in the abuse of detainees started almost immediately. Now, the roots of this program really originated in the United States both at Guantanamo Bay and at state uh, correctional systems. So there were eight private contractors who were hired by the U.S. government to select the site, rebuild Abu Ghraib, train staff, and generally advise the Iraqi correctional system. Uh, all eight of these men were former high-level prison administrators in state systems. And all eight of these men were responsible for launching, administering, or expanding programs in the U.S. that use attack-trained dogs in the 80s and 90s to attack or terrify people who are incarcerated. Explain who these uh, corrections, if you could even refer to it as, commissioners are. I mean, these were the top guys from Utah, from Arizona, from Connecticut, from—well, tell us. Sure. So, um, it were, they were correctional—as you said, commissioners or directors from Arizona, Utah, uh, Connecticut and Massachusetts. Uh, one of the major figures was Lane McCotter. He started the patrol dog program first in New Mexico in 1988 and then moved on to administer a similar program in Utah. Gary DeLand was also the director of the Utah State System. He started a special operations team in Utah in the late 80s that used attack-trained dogs for cell extractions, which is the forcible removal of a man in their cell by sending an attack-trained dog into the cell to, to attack them. And to be clear, all of these men who ran these prison systems were forced out by lawsuits or political controversy, like women who were raped in the prisons or a person who died as a result of torture there. Yes. In fact, there was a 2005 Office of the Investigative General report that scrutinized the background of these private contractors uh, because of these human rights abuses that followed them from the 80s and 90s uh, before they were ever sent to Iraq to administer these programs in Abu Ghraib. So it, it's fairly shocking that uh, the U.S. federal government even contracted these, these men. And so talk about what happened back in the United States, because your report goes right through uh, to now. Yes. So many of these programs, uh, Utah discontinued it, but uh, Connecticut, Massachusetts, 
Arizona, among uh, five other states now, continue to use attack-trained dogs either as a show force. So what this means is that they are using the dogs to bark, to growl, to terrify people who are incarcerated into compliance, or to attack them. So in Virginia, for example, it's the extreme outlier. 271 men have been attacked by these patrol dogs since 2017. So give us examples um, of what happened in prisons and the use of these patrol dogs to terrorize. So in Virginia specifically, the dogs are deployed almost as a routine use of force. So what this means is they might be used when there's a fight that happens in one of these prisons, and the dogs are called into the cell block to bark, to terrify, and then to attack the men who are involved in those, in those altercations. In other instances, they're involved in what's called a planned use of force, so again, a cell extraction. So I have records of many men who were refusing to leave their cells, and um, the correction officers sent one or sometimes even two dogs into the cell to attack the men uh, where they had nowhere to run. And talk about what happens afterwards. These attacks are severe. Uh, as you said, they're sometimes permanently disfiguring and disabling. Uh, at least 18 men I identified had to be hospitalized for the you know, sheer force and brutality of these attacks. It's puncture wounds, it's crush injuries, sometimes it results in septic infections, which is life-threatening. But what I have been told many times from these men who are attacked is the psychological impact is also incredibly severe. Um, many experience panic attacks, nightmares, intrusive thoughts, and other symptoms that are consistent with post-traumatic stress disorder months or even years after the attack. Even those folks who witness these attacks say that it's devastating. Um, they also suffer nightmares afterwards. I spoke to corrections officers who similarly say that witnessing the, the blood, the screaming, uh, the sheer sense of terror is, is primal, is what they told me, and uh, in, incredibly traumatizing, something that they have to live with for, again, months and years afterwards. And can you talk about the dogs being attacked um, while the um, guard is spewing racial slurs at the prisoner? And then talk about the history of the use of attack dogs and racial attacks. I spoke to several historians who told me that the use of dogs as a, a weaponization of dogs has a long and racist history in the United States, whether these dogs were being deployed against indigenous people for acts of genocide, uh, whether they were employed on plantations to brutally enforce slavery, uh, all the way through to 1963 Birmingham, for example, with those iconic photographs of German shepherds being sicked against teenagers. Now we're seeing them deployed in a prison environment, and the same sort of racist connotations are happening. I spoke to several men, um, at least seven, who allege either in court filings or in interviews with me that they were subjected to racist abuse, racist slurs, threats, either during or immediately after their attacks. Um, this could be, you know, again, racial epithets, but it also can be threats such as, uh, my dog loves dark meat. We're talking to Hannah Beckler, uh, who just did this chilling investigation for Insider called Patrol Dogs Are Terrorizing and Mauling Prisoners Inside the United States. We're also joined by Xavier Goodwin, featured in this new Insider investigation. He filed a civil complaint that a corrections officer at the Red Onion Virginia State Prison held him down and repeatedly called him the N-word 
as a dog was attacking him in December of 2015. Xavier, I am so horrified that this happened to you. Thank you very much for joining us from Richmond. Can you lay out what happened to you? Um, that morning it was an altercation in the park. Um, as to where I, uh, I came on my cell and I, I, I busted another inmate in the head. And it just went up between the inmates. When the, when, the, when the staff was called, they came in. And it just came in hot. Now, I get it that I was, a, I was uh, like one of the last that was on my feet. But at the time when he uh, engaged his canine, I was in a prone position. I was compliant. That's when uh, the officer came in and he sprayed me while I was already down. When he sprayed me, everything just went mayhem. Um, they, was on, they was on me, uh, twisting my, my legs, my, my arms, behind my back, putting handcuffs and shackles on me. <clears throat> while I was down, um, he picked the canine up and placed him on my back. And, and uh, after that, then it was taking me out of the vestibule. And uh, I feel the uh, momentum, like, pick up as they walk me, because it's one on each side. And uh, he ran my head into the steel frame of the door and held my head up against the door. So the dog, you said he, uh, the dog came at you, and what did he do to your right leg? He bit it. He bit it. Several times. I mean, the mark's still there. I was short to prove it. <laughs> and when did he stop? When did they pull the dog away? You know, this this is the second time he engaged the dog on me. This time I was already in handcuffs and shackles when he put it on my right leg. Um, probably, probably he probably held on for maybe ten seconds, something like that. Oh, ten seconds. He held, he, he got me for about ten seconds, but he bit me twice in ten seconds. And just to be clear, did you say at the beginning that they put a dog on your back? Yes, ma'am. He placed him on my back. You can see it in the video. It's in the video uh, that they played in court. And when you were laying him. down on your stomach, they put the dog on your back. He lifted him up and placed him on my back. Literally, lift him up. Like, grabbed him under his belly and put and pit him on my back. Like, basically, like, telling him what to do. Making him do it. And what did the dog do? He didn't bite me, but he snipped at my face. He, sn he, uh, he snipped at my face, but I think what saved my face was, uh, he had already sprayed me. But being that the CO had already sprayed me, I guess the dog wasn't going around. So you mean, like, pepper sprayed or maced you? Yeah, pepper spray. Yeah, pepper spray. Oh. It was pepper spray. It was even too much for the dog. Absolutely. So that was the beginning, them putting the dog on your back. And then they took you, slammed the, you against the bars. Your head is um, against the bars. And was it the same dog they brought up who then bit your right leg? That part is unclear. That part is unclear. They never uh, gave me the video from the vestibule. And they edit the uh, the handheld camera. So right when the camera started rolling, 
is when we invest in the vestibule. Xavier, you tried to sue? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, my case was, uh, I appealed too. Um, my case, it was, uh, he ruled in favor of the defendants. Um, the thing, the thing with that I don't understand is that during trial, um, I repeatedly, um, made sure I got things on, on transcript that they were saying. So I asked, so I, so me and the judge was talking about, and he said, Mr. Goodwin, there's no doubt in my mind that they violated policy. He said, I'm trying to see if they violated your constitutional rights as well. But Virginia Department of Correctional Policies is governed by your constitutional rights. So if they violate one, they violate both. So you were upset that the but, uh, Virginia Attorney General um, didn't defend you, but defended those who sick the dog on you? He an officer of the law, absolutely. I told him that in court. He an officer of the law. It's on transcript. I told him that in court. I said, man, you're an officer of the law, man. How you going to defend what they did? When you see it, it's on tape. So, absolutely. I felt some type of way. Hannah Beckler, when you heard Xavier's description of what happened to him, can you fit this into the context of what you've heard from other prisoners? How typical is this horror? I think it's very typical. Uh, frankly, Xavier describes being compliant, being spread eagle on the floor. Uh, many of the men I spoke with described that this is what they had done. They had were flat on the ground, face down, arms out, because, again, they're so terrified of these dogs, they don't want to be attacked. Um, so even after they've attempted to demonstrate full compliance, the animal is still uh, commanded to attack them. So for Xavier, the idea that the dog was lifted and placed onto his back and it bit his left leg, and then they removed the dog, and he was bit again on his right leg. Um, it's shocking, uh, but I don't think it's necessarily a, an, an outlier or something that's uncommon. Xavier, you, I'm sure, have seen video of uh, police attacking civil rights activists um, with dogs, like in Birmingham, the children, in 1963. Your thoughts? <laughs> I think the same, the same thing still going on today, just in a in a different way. You understand what I'm saying? I just sent Miss Beckler something yesterday from all CNN. I was looking at CNN and seeing something similar. The dude was complying, and they still released the dog on him. So yeah, I mean, it, it's still going on, man. Um, Xavier, that's really important, what you raised. I mean, you're talking about the story of the video that was just released about a truck driver. Absolutely. He was black, right? Absol it was absolutely. Ohio. And uh, they, absolutely. when he got out of the truck, they said, you have to have your hands above your head, behind your head. And he had them high yeah. above his head. Um, so he was absolutely. in a very vulnerable position. No one thought that he was a threat. And you see behind him a policeman unleash a dog, even as other police or troopers are saying, do not release that dog. And a woman yeah, yeah. Uh, police officer who looks horrified and is walking away as he is being attacked, mauled by this dog. Yeah, yeah man. Absolutely. Absolutely.
As we begin to wrap up, Hannah Beckler, what have you found? What states forbid the use of dogs, and what's happening in these states where they are used so aggressively, where so many people—I mean, in the past years, hundreds of people have been purposely bitten? I think what's most startling about the use of dogs in correctional settings is there's no academic study that assesses the efficacy of using these dogs. So it's it's all over the place in terms of the policies and how they're employed in these different state systems. So you have a system like Massachusetts, for example, where we documented three dog attacks in 2020 at Sousa Baranowski. Um, their policy is that the actual corrections commissioner uh, is supposed to grant permission every time an attack trained dog is entering the facility. So you have that kind of direct accountability chain. Uh, in contrast to Virginia, for example, where 271 people were attacked by dogs as a routine use of force. Um, and then New Jersey, uh, for example, uh, have not used dogs to attack anyone, but they're still weaponizing terror by using the dogs to, again, terrify uh, with barking and snarling dogs, people who are incarcerated to force them into compliance. Um, now, I know that Utah, for example, has stopped using these dogs uh, for use of force. So that does happen. Massachusetts and Arizona, both independently at one point, uh, decided to stop using dogs. They have since reintroduced using dogs. Um, so it is a very interesting occurrence. Um, most of the corrections officers and corrections uh, administrators that I've spoken to argue that using dogs make facilities safer um, for both staff and prisoners alike. However, again, because these dogs are indiscriminately aggressive, we're also seeing attacks on correction officers and other prison staff. Mm. And finally, Xavier, what message do you Perfect. have to share with people around the country and around the world? <laughs> it's still going on in the western region of Virginia. Absolutely. It's real heavy up there. Still going on up there. Xavier Goodwin was attacked by a dog in 2015 at Red Onion State Prison in Wise County, Virginia, near the town of Pound. Thanks also to Hannah Beckler, investigations editor for Insider. We'll link to her new investigation. Patrol dogs are terrorizing and mauling prisoners inside the United States. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! is currently accepting applications for paid internships in our archive and development departments. Learn more and apply at democracynow.org. Oh, at our website, you can also sign up for our Daily News Digest email, or you can text the word democracy now, that's one word, no space, to 66866. That's the word democracy now, one word, text it to 66866. You can watch and listen to Democracy Now! when you want by subscribing to our podcast in English and Spanish. Find them wherever you get your podcasts today. And visit our website to see our extended interview with atomic bomb historian Greg Mitchell on the new film Oppenheimer, as well as our interviews in English and Spanish with the great novelist Isabel Allende about her new book, The Wind Knows My Name. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us for another edition of Democracy Now!